when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> Benefits of a classical education. This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Sherry. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. So today on the podcast, we have Sherry Hamilton. And if the name sounds oddly similar to another previous guest, Justin Hamilton, it's because they're married. And that's not where the similarities end. She's also a martial artist as well as an academic, finishing up her PhD in comparative literature. Hi, Sherry. Hi. Hi, Sherry. When we think of comparative literature, a lot of people either have never heard of it or guys like us who come from combat sports and who come from a more broier side of the internet, <laughs> probably the only time we've heard of it is when it's ridiculed. Right. And so on the internet, especially the parts of the internet where we travel, it might not be presented in the best light. And so that's why I wanted to bring you on, especially when I found out from Justin, the area of your study, to come on and explain to us what comparative literature is and to actually hear it from somebody who knows about it rather than people who use it as a way to, let's say, disparage academia and how it's turning young people into, I don't know what they turn into, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is that's happening on campuses, they don't like it. And comparative right. literature, along with certain aspects of sociology and gender studies is always brought up. Right. So what is comparative literature? So comparative literature, and I think more commonly, I would not be surprised if no one has ever heard of it, because it is a little bit more of a niche academic field. But to me, the most important concept within comparative literature is that it's an intercultural field of study. So anyone who is a comparatist, which are what our scholars are called, are generally working with at least two different national literatures, meaning that you're working with... Um, all different types of literature or performance scripts, manuscripts in general in their native languages, in the original language. And you're tracing anything from genre, um, political developments, social developments, conflict in through their relation to a literary work. So I already have a feeling, right, that what we'll be doing is circling around what it is how do we know anything? We compare it to something we already know. We right. say, uh, what does that look like? Right. And then we start with like, it's like this other thing. And I think especially with a field like comparative literature, which we know nothing about, even when you initially explain it, 
It sounds kind of vague, right? It's, we're still on the vagueness. Right, so right. So we're going to keep circling around it until we get closer right. and closer and we can wrap our minds around it. And that's understandable, too, because comparative literature is such it really is a huge umbrella and it's inherently interdisciplinary. So comparatists are always engaging with the sociological discourse, um, philosophy, anthropology in a lot of ways. So, like I said, you're kind of working with a lot of different academic elements at once. And when we look at other fields of research like sociology or philosophy, you can think off the top of your head, oh, who are some of the famous sociologists, Foucault, Bourdieu, all of these names. But when you think of comparative literature, no one is necessarily a famous comparatist. There are some out there, but you're more just engaging with different disciplines to create your own niche work that is still contributing to the just general advancement of knowledge. And if I had to really target what I think is the goal of comparative literature in general, is that as comparatists, we are kind of fighting the fight against, particularly now in our social and political climate uh, in the United States and elsewhere, honestly, is to work against this idea that cultural distinction equals intellectual boundaries. So particularly when we're looking at Eastern traditions versus Western traditions, and even just different parts of Europe in comparison to the United States, we don't need to view cultural traditions through our lens when we can use comparative literature to explore culture, how they, what they call from the inside. That's really the goal of comparative literature is to explore culture from the inside because we're engaging with texts in their native language, in the original language, which can, which can provide a sort of understanding that's not capable in translation. So does that mean that for your study, you have to be able to speak multiple languages then? Yes. You at least need to be have reading fluency in more than one language, but generally that what comes along with that is spoken fluency as well. And with subjects that are interdisciplinary, how long has that been around in academia? Has that always been around as long as colleges have been around and universities have been around? Or is that a fairly new thing where you're using disciplines from multiple areas? Well, comparative literature in general has been around for quite a while. And it's I would say its reputation as a discipline has gone through some fluctuations. I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, I just know the point that I'm entering is I like to think we're back on like an uptick of on the reputation meter of comparative literature. Um, so basically, the interdisciplinary tradition of working with texts in relation and they're looking at their intersections with political circumstance, social circumstance and other elements of culture is not new by any means. Um, sociology, I think, is has been a recognized discipline for longer than comparative literature. But sociologists are often working in translation um, with their theoreticians, whereas comparative literature just dives a little bit deeper into that study. Is this something you picked up while you were an undergrad or something you chose while you were studying literature? Well, so my background is in classics, which that's another sort of obscure field in a lot of ways, where when I mentioned to people that my undergraduate degree is in classics, and then I also did at UCLA a, what's called a post-baccalaureate program in classics, um, it's generally a field 
where when I mention to people that I've studied classics in the past, they think that I'm referring to classical literature like Shakespeare and things like that is kind of the comments that I'll get. But classics or classical studies is the study of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and um, Mediterranean civilizations as a whole and their intersections. So it's a very rigorous field of study where you're studying dead cultures, dead languages. Um, it's very heavy academia. And when I was in my classics program, um, part of the requirements are you also learn a modern language. And I chose Italian at that time. And once I started learning Italian, I actually found my true passion is really it lies in languages and what I would kind of coin as more of a simple, casual cultural linguistics. So it's not the dense sort of linguistics that we find in a lot of areas within comparative literature, but it, it, it engages with verb structures and things like that in modern spoken languages and how they relate to our culture and how we express ourselves um, and how language divides us and can also express things that are very nuanced and are difficult to convey through translations. So to kind of go back to your question, I was um, originally in uh, the post-baccalaureate program when I started learning Italian, and I realized so many things when I started reading more modern Italian literature that coincided with this classical literature in Latin that I had known for several years, and I really decided that I wanted to explore further in a comparative setting more of classical antiquity and how it relates to our time now. So comparative literature sounds like those Russian dolls, you know, where it's like you exactly. open one up, and it's like yes. a doll inside of a doll <laughs> inside of a doll. Yes. Uh, or like a giant burrito inside of a burrito inside of a burrito. Yes. And maybe that's the part of the reason why also people... People like to make fun of things they don't understand. And when it's so layered or so meta, mm -hmm. where there's so many layers on top of layers, it's hard to understand. And I think I'm starting to understand now why it is so hard to wrap your mind around because it's not only comparing different cultures and different languages, it's intercultural, like you said, but also interdisciplinary. Exactly. So it's like, uh, let's think of it as network nodes, right? Mm-hmm. And you can tell me if I'm off. I'm just trying to translate it into a language maybe other people can understand. Mm -hmm. But like a network node has all these like points that it could shoot off to that also shoots into it. And when you zoom into any of this offshoots, it has other nodes within that, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at intercultural, you're comparing all these different cultures and each culture that you're comparing it to, you're also having to be interdisciplinary in all those facets as well. Exactly. Instead of like arithmetic thinking, it would have to be more of a geometrical thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Why didn't you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> Comparative literature, it really does necessitate a broader understanding of so many different really subject areas because you're making these assertions um, where you're not necessarily in our black and white sort of thinking, comparing and contrasting two cultures, because that's always sort of a slippery slope. But it's one that academia in general has run into over the years. And I think we're kind of rehabbing this through our modern comparative literature programs, just for example, with East Asian studies or Asian studies in general, where we as scholars, well, scholars of the past and really not too long ago, 
we're always looking at Asian cultures through this Western lens and not appreciating that these are longstanding cultures that have traditions and precepts of their own and philosophical tenets that we are attributing and comparing. We're defining them only in relation to our own philosophies, but they have traditions of their own. So when we're sort of um, exoticizing Asian cultures in academia, even uh, scholars are guilty of that. They have been for many years, but I know um, within our department at University of California, Riverside, we have a lot of scholars um, on Chinese literature that work with Chinese literature and are working um, kind of battling against and really trying to trying to erase some of the scholarship that has been done in the past on Asian culture in general. But like I said, comparative literature, it does necessitate so much broader of an understanding because you're engaging with cultures and yes, they're outside of your own. So you are doing something different than anthropology, which is another discipline that has run into some trouble where it's kind of, you know, you run the risk of appropriating certain things and you're making claims that you really don't have the right to make. Because you're doing it through a paradigm that is very implicit in a lot of ways, but in scholarship, it becomes explicit and it's very apparent. So, you know, comparative literature is always sort of working towards erasing those boundaries and establishing better understandings of each other's cultures. And I think, you know, how you mentioned that sometimes it can be a sort of easy to deride uh, academic field. Uh, my guess as to why that would be, and I can understand it because I, I understand that all of academia and academics just on the spectrum at all are criticized at times for focusing too much on things, which I think you sort of touched on, but particularly in comparative literature, because even through my definition, it sounds so vague, you know, I always say about comparative literature, you could literally study anything. You could write a dissertation on golf and you can just trace golf through different cultures. So it depends on the goal of your scholarship, but, you know, it, it also depends on whether or not you want your dissertation and your work in the future to contribute to furthering an understanding of other cultures or if it's more of just a passion project. So a lot of people... I think in comparative literature, and there's nothing wrong with this, do more of passion projects where they find something that they're interested in. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that work on anime and comics and different forms of entertainment that have real social and academic significance, but they may not be theoretical contributions. They're important nonetheless. But I think that's why comparative literature can kind of catch some flack sometimes is because a lot of people will be researching things that they just find interesting or for fun, you know. So it's like deep diving. Right. And I think part of why people want to make fun of it goes to why people want to attack or make fun of anything they don't understand, even if it's not just ideas like this, but also people. Yes. If I don't understand it, I want to make fun of it or I want to attack it. And especially the types of people who want to attack areas of study, they think they're smart. Right. And if they don't understand it, it makes them feel dumb. Exactly. And then they want to attack what makes them feel dumb or what makes them feel bad. But it really sounds like it's a type of 
not even an area of study. It's a type of scholarship or a type of thinking where you have to just price it all in. Exactly. And that's really hard for people to do because it's like critical thinking on steroids, right? It is critical thinking on steroids. I think that's probably the perfect way to describe it. And the very lack of understanding that you referenced is one of the dangers that can easily be weaponized when it's put on a larger scale. When we see things like, you know, we move politically from a war against specific people to, we'll just say, a war on drugs or a war in the Middle East. But what are these distinctions? If we are just using language and we're using culture and weaponizing it in a way that, okay, well, now we're just fighting against the Middle East. Well, that doesn't make sense when you think critically about it. And it it demonstrates a real lack of cultural understanding. And a lot of these things stem from a lack of knowing the language. We place so much importance on not understanding someone's language and having that convey complete intellectual separation and that there could not, we take that as an indication that we can't understand these people. We're different past the point of reconciliation. Whereas if you take the time, and this is where comparative literature is a very rigorous field, just like classics is, if you take the time to understand someone's language, it opens up so many doors outside of just being able to read their literature on a surface level. You begin to understand their culture in so many ways. You understand how they relate to each other and how that differs from how we relate to each other here in the United States. So when it comes to competitive literature, would you say one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest, is just ignorance or people not being able to critically think through subjects? I would say that, unfortunately, ignorance is a really big part of it because we, in this day and age, and I think it is constantly improving, but we, the general population lacks a certain respect for the humanities and for the soft sciences, the social sciences, and just, you know, you hear jokes sometimes about a liberal arts education being kind of a crappy education or at least a useless education. It's not practical. But in actuality, so many of our problems today stem from people not having a liberal arts education and not having any. They have such a narrow focus on their own cultural upbringing and circumstance that they don't realize how closely they do relate to the people around them that they're so quick to refer to as their enemies. Because the world that we live in, especially because of the incentives, the financial incentives, I guess people feel like. It makes more sense to be a specialist instead of somebody who tries to understand things in a broad way. Exactly. If I understand things in a very thin sliced way, I'll get paid more. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to Marx's criticisms. And it's, it's interesting that a lot of his things that he pointed out now capitalists use as a strength because right. he was the one who realized, hey, people are are motivated by incentives. Right. That wasn't something that Adam Smith came up with. That was something that Marx came up with. And then the capitalists like, OK. That's true. Right. Let's add that as a feature of exactly. capitalism. Right. Right. And specialization. He said, yeah, what you guys are doing, you guys don't realize you guys are making specialties and making everybody just know a small fraction of like this bigger thing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, yeah, is that what we're doing? OK, let's put the emphasis on that and let's make jobs around these thin sliced areas of thinking and skill sets. But then if you think about it, if everybody's very specialized and know very thin sliced things, then how are we all supposed to get along? Exactly. Yeah, it really 
thinking like that is what compartmentalizes our societies and how we end up with these distinctions that are completely derived from arbitrary geographical delineations on the planet. I mean, there's no difference between it, particularly even when you're speaking the same language and comparative literature will engage with um, different national literatures, even of the same language, but say, you know, from here in England, there are so many cultural differences that stem from, you know, these same things that we're talking about. And one of the projects that I worked on recently, which kind of touches on you referring to Marx and everything, is looking at Italy in the early 1900s, where we have, um, even before Mussolini, but the rise of Mussolini, Italy really prayed and the political circumstances that Italy found itself, you know, here and in the interwar period on the emergence of the social sciences as a respectable field. So at the same time that the social sciences, things like sociology and philosophy, philosophy has been around for obviously thousands of years, but things like sociology and their theoretical perspectives were finally at the forefront of academia and becoming respected. Um, as legitimate theories. And so the precursors to the fascist regime kind of took advantage of that because they could find their own quote unquote sociologists that would come up with their social theories that could explain things that would sway behaviors towards their direction. Things like primal instinct. There's um, a French sociologist, Georges Sorel, and he did a lot of work on peasant violence. And so this is what the fascist regime and the precursor to that, the Italian Nationalist Party, really kind of preyed on is they would look at the writings of Marx, who wrote a piece on the 18th Brumaire, which has to deal with certain elements of the French Revolution. And so this is where we're kind of playing with different cultures and understanding things can go wrong very quickly if you don't if you're not aware of what's of your surroundings. So Marx wrote uh, the 18th Brumaire about certain elements of the French Revolution and talked about the danger is really with the peasantry. And when we're talking about peasantry, yes, it's a lot more relatable of a concept to Europe in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But we can still imagine what that is. It's a rural lifestyle, um, the majority of these populations, and they're farmers. And these people, both in France and in Italy, they are relatively independent. You know, they don't rely on their societies and their communities in the way that we do in an urban metropolis. So Marx wrote that the peasantry are at the greatest risk for falling into these kind of ploys like fascism that was to come and Nazism, things like this, because they are always, this is what Marx said, the peasantry are always looking to the past. They're not looking to the future like city dwellers are. They're always trying to reclaim this glorified past of being quasi-independent where you're living as part of a community, but you're relatively self-sustained because you produce your own goods, you consume your own goods, so you really don't rely on other people for a lot of things. So he cautioned against that. And then you have um, George Sorel, who I mentioned, who wrote on peasant violence and this is kind of pseudo-sociology that was picked up by the Nationalist Party in Italy, claiming that um, peasant violence is rightful violence because it is an inherent um, and primal instinct 
to fight against oppression. And this kind of also plays into what became a huge element of Mussolini's regime and the fascist agenda and their propaganda was this idea of Romanity. So what does it mean to be Roman? Because we think of Rome as the most glorified place a lot of the times in European history, right? But Rome before fascist Italy, Rome was being rejected even by people like Mussolini because it was not a huge hub of production like he wanted it to be. So, but then when he realized that they can kind of cultivate and excavate these classical these elements of classical antiquity from Rome and they can use those and manipulate people like the peasantry to say this is in your bloodline you are roman you come from this bloodline look at these monuments that they build we're going to reclaim this past this is going to be they would say it's going to be the third rome the first rome was a classical antiquity then they had rome in the medieval times and now this was supposed to be the third Rome where people are, are reclaiming their bloodline and their identity. But it's just preying on, like you said, looking at the Marxist uh, theoretical perspectives and just kind of taking from there and using it against the people because they're just not aware of the theories that were being put out at that time. And the social sciences were at a point of such infancy that you could bring in these other people like Sorel that are talking about violence and promoting violence using the same language that Marx used. And they didn't they were lacking any kind of empirical data that we have now in sociology. So it was so easy to just claim superiority or at least legitimacy as a social scientist then. And it was very bad timing. And we're seeing a comeback of that again. And uh, it's not like now that we have internet and Wikipedia, that we're not susceptible anymore. Though I don't agree with everything F.A. Hayek said, one of the things that he warned was that in the future, lack of information isn't going to be the thing that causes ignorance. It's going to be too much information. It's yes. like going into a McDonald's that, let's say, it's a new kind of McDonald's that has 500 options for food. What do you do? You order the same three things. Mm -hmm. You don't want to know about all 500. When you have too many options, you zone in on a few things. And that's kind of what the internet has done is in a way where show them everything to teach them nothing. Mm -hmm. So because you bombarded people now, then you can simplify things because they just want things to be simple again. Right. So if I come up with a simple answer, a one word answer, a name of a group, or I could explain an idea in one sentence or one meme, then it becomes much more attractive. And that same kind of ploy of bait and switch is used today with race science mm -hmm. and also atheism, online atheism, because they're using the identity. Oh, you identify as rational, whether you really are or not, that's how you identify. Right. Exactly. Then I will start off every sentence with this is the rational approach or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then also you have people who fancy themselves like, oh, I like history. I think I'm smart, right? So then they also use things like Viking heritage or from the classics, stoicism, mm -hmm. things like this as a gateway into white nationalism. Right. Which is the same ploys they used back then. Mm -hmm. And they're using that as a way to talk about something that they think is natural to you, that is innate to you as a white person. Exactly. And I always, I think it's always going to be dangerous when someone describes something as innate behavior or primal 
a primal instinct because a lot of the times people nowadays who spend a lot of time on the internet and then try and present their ideas as or they'll use the term like I did some research on this. Well, what does that mean? If you just went on Wikipedia or if you just Googled something, that's not really research in the sense that we know research in academia. You have to have some kind of substantial findings behind this. It can't just be a theoretical perspective pulled out of nowhere and you just think that. So that's what it is. And that's the danger of explaining things as inherent or primal, like you're saying, uh, it all traces back to these. They were such precursors to these horrible, violent movements against the lower classes. And it's like if you're not aware of those things, then that's really dangerous to go around in our society and spread those kind of ideas around. I think the new primal instinct is Judeo-Christian values. Yes. Where you're making it seem like that's just primal. It's genetic within you. It's natural. Exactly. So then you shouldn't even question it. Mm-hmm. Because if you question it, you think it's an assumption. Right. And this is not an assumption. Yes. This is just a natural law. It's the truth. Capital T truth. And that's another term you hear a lot. Natural law. Mm-hmm. Like capital T truth. It is just the way it is. Don't question it. We need somewhere to start. Right. This is a starting point. But then it becomes religious again. It becomes dogmatic again, which then goes back to online, quote unquote, new atheists who jumped onto this. Mm-hmm. It appears to me like you almost need to understand comparative literature first to understand why comparative literature is misunderstood. So here's what I mean. I can imagine people listening to this, maybe not my fan base, but let's say somebody is letting their friend hear it who's a big Jordan Peterson fan or mm-hmm. or somebody like that, right? Yeah, I think in the combat sports world, Jordan Peterson might be the only academic that even exists in the yeah. world. <laughs> so let's say they listen to somebody like that, right? Then I can imagine this person the whole time is like, when is she going to explain then what this has to do with literature? Because I think the name, right? Nameism, like nounism, right? Yes. It has the word literature in there. Mm -hmm. But you're describing to me a process of thinking that could be applied anywhere. Right. Then why did you use the word literature in it? And this requires comparative literature, just from what I'm learning from speaking to you, to unpack that because it goes down to maybe American culture where it's like a lot of literal thinking. You use the word literature, then literally it must only be about literature, right? right? And I don't know if that goes back to like the puritanical thinking traditions that spawned a lot of uh, American culture, Mm -hmm. where it's kind of this very literal reading of the Bible. Right. And so they'll use something like that again with Nazism, right? They say nationalist, socialist. It has those words in there. Mm -hmm. And you've had people on what they call the intellectual dark web and also on the alt-right, like people like Candace Owens or this site called Turning Point USA and Dave Rubin and all these dum-dums who are like, it has the word in it. And from their framework, because they can't think outside of their framework because it's like telling a fish you're in water. If you're always in water, it's hard for you to see water unless the fish takes compared to literature. (laughs) Then you can see that you're in water. But they're like, it has the word in it. Mm-hmm. Then that's what it is. Exactly. It's very shallow thinking, unfortunately. And it is it's comparative literature. Like you're saying, it really does take a more nuanced approach to looking at some of our values that we take for granted in our societies. And even when we're talking about the Bible, even separating, extracting the Bible from a religious context and using it just as a historical artifact, which is done by thousands of scholars and there are entire divinity programs that are set up for this um, for religious studies and things like that. But 
even when you're looking at a text, we don't even think of the Bible as a text a lot of the times, but that's what it is. And if you compare all of the different translations of the Bible, we have the King James, I think, is the most popular, but there's several. And if you compare a lot of the passages to the original Greek that it's written in, they are incredibly diverse and dynamic. And the translators have taken a lot of liberty. And Greek, this is one thing that's very unique about English, is that especially in comparison to dead languages like ancient Greek and Latin, English lacks a lot of the emotional substance within words, the emotional essence where words used to have thousands of years ago a lot more power to them. But now, like we've already discussed, people throw around words left and right and our communication bases are so much wider that we don't really think critically about language past the surface level. But language and individual words used to have such significance. And when we even trace the translations of the Bible, you're getting meanings that some of these extremists or even just generally, you know, perfectly fine religious people extract these meanings from passages that really aren't there in the original text. So regardless of your religious beliefs, you still have to recognize that there's some sort of an adaptation going on. And if you're not acknowledging that, then you're not thinking critically about the world around you. And you're denying yourself the ability to understand things just on a, on a broader level. So two things I'm thinking about right now, based on what you just said. Number one is even if every translation of the Bible was off the original Greek, there in itself will have variability and problems and lack of consistency. Yes. But that's not even the problem we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is a lot of the Bible translations are translations off of other translations, which never actually touches the original text. Exactly. And this reminds me of a lot of East Asian work where somebody translated it very early on to one language, probably Portuguese, and then that got translated to English. And then you have uh, somebody translating you know, the works of, let's say, something popular that a lot of listeners might know, like, let's say, Miyamoto Musashi, or a Chinese work like uh, the Tao Te Ching. And they're taking something that's been translated a bunch of times, and then they're doing a new translation or an adaptation, I should say, off of a translation instead of ever dealing with the original text. I remember I was reading this work of this guy who seemed like, wow, this guy knows a lot of uh, Eastern Asian uh, philosophy, and he teaches at an Ivy League school. Then I learned that he doesn't even speak Chinese, even though that's what he teaches. So everything That's he's awful. going off of is the translations. Right. And so that happens not only to Eastern philosophy and Eastern works, that happens to the Bible as well. And then it becomes like not even a telephone that goes back to the source. It's an infinite telephone that never has a source. Exactly. And it's it's sort of like you start with the ultimate source and then you'll have a few arteries coming off of that of translations. And then when you make a translation off of those, I mean, it's it just increases exponentially the variability and really the lack of clarity. And so then to read something in translation or even to translate it yourself and to claim that it is an exact replica of the of the copy in the original language it's just, it's not possible. So, and even in Chinese philosophy and the Chinese language has such a rich tradition that is oftentimes neglected. And so you can read things 
very significant works of Chinese literature, like the story of the stone or Peony Pavilion. I don't know if you're familiar with those ones, but they they're pieces of literature that have so clearly affected the Western literary tradition in certain ways, or at least they other elements are reflected in it. And so to deny an understanding of that is just unscholarly. One of the things I've seen done the most often, even by people who love Eastern philosophy, is they'll take something like Taoism and they won't understand it for what it is and will convert it into this Western American idea of centrism. Right. Because they're turning it into something they already know and like, then what did you even need to learn Eastern philosophy for? Exactly. You already know what centrism is. Exactly. And that maybe that's bad comparative literature. It's like, oh, that's like this in my culture. It must be the same thing because they must be, their end result must mimic mine. It must be similar to mine. So if I can twist it in any way that I can by extracting it from their culture and any understanding of their culture and say, well, it must be like centrism because that's what I know. And so that's, that must have been what they meant, you know? And so that is, it's, it's not a good approach. Actually, something that I've talked to a lot with Daniele Bellelli, a friend of both of yours, mm-hmm. and he's talked about this in his own podcast, but I don't think he's ever worked it out. And maybe because he hasn't taken comparative literature <laughs> and he hasn't spoken to you about it yet. Perhaps. I hope he listens to this episode, but he's always trying to work out how come my friends, not friends anymore, but former friends who are into Alan Watts who are into Eastern philosophy, end up on the alt-right, end up buying into fascism, right? Mm -hmm. When they still so-called claim to be into Eastern philosophy. And I think it's because they were never really into Eastern philosophy, even when they were at their most Alan Watts kind of love everybody phase phase of it, because it was just temporal. They always had this understanding of it as centrism or the logic fallacy of argument to moderation, right? Mm -hmm. The middle must be the truth. And I did an episode about this, about why message boards that try to be centrist always turn into Nazi shit shows. Because Mm -hmm. when you do argument to moderation, where you believe the truth or what is correct is always in the middle, then you could take ice cream and you could take chocolate. And to you, the ideal ice cream would be something in the middle. Right. But it doesn't even become half ice cream half chocolate. Right. When you mix the two together, it's just 100% shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the same thing happens with message boards where they try to do it in this rational Taoistic approach. Right. We're going to let all these different ideas in. What's going to happen? Somebody invites their racist cousin who says all kinds of stuff. Oh, he's just kidding. Let him get away with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Why are you censoring him? And you let it go and let it go. He invites more friends. And also that becomes normative. Oh, okay, now we can all do this. Because the thing about centrists, like Daniele's friend, is that they're highly flammable. So you have somebody who's a pyro, and you have all these people who are 50% flammable. Mm -hmm. Even if you have something that's 50% flammable, the whole thing will catch on fire. Exactly. And not only that, because of that, the people who are not centrist and not a Nazi, maybe they were on the side of altruism and egalitarianism, they'll be in this message board. And they won't want to be there anymore. And then they'll also self-select themselves out. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, very quickly, actually, on the Internet, things can happen very quickly. It turns into doesn't happen overnight. But the eventual step is that it turns into a very like nasty, toxic place. Yeah. And that is not what Taoism is supposed to be about. Right. So I think looking at it through this lens, then it makes more sense how this happens, how somebody who's into Alan Watts and uh, 
Krishnamurti and like reading about Taoism can go down this path. It's not even that they're going down a path. They didn't stray from the original work. They mm-hmm. never understood the original work. Exactly. They always misunderstood the original work and they ended up where they always were. It's just that before they were just flammable, whereas now they've caught on fire. Exactly. And that's really the danger that I think we see so often now where we have people that just worship figures like Jordan Peterson, or I'm sure there's other ones out there. I'm just thinking in the combat sports world where you just think because this person is a scholar that, well, he has truth with a capital T, right? In a different sort of way. So anything he says has to be true because he's the first one I heard say it. So no matter how many scholars I hear contest what he says, and I'm not saying that everything he says is wrong, but there's certainly points that don't quite line up with, you know, things that I know. Well, there's two things about him, right? That applies to what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. It's the simple trick and going back to understanding about our own biases within this culture. He keeps referring to himself as a doctor. And very few PhDs force you to call them a doctor, mm-hmm. but he makes it a point. And that's the first mental trick that he's doing. Right. He makes everybody call him a doctor. So now he's in a position of authority. You have to give him a title yes. before you introduce him. And that's even a simple way. Sorry to cut you off, but that's even a simple way that language, that's part of cultural linguistics. And that's the way that it shapes our understanding of the world around us, where if someone is ensuring that everyone is calling him doctor, it lends a sense of importance. It lends a sense of authority where you're going to want to subconsciously be submissive to them. At least that's their goal. And so these are kind of like the finer elements of language that I was pointing to before. And that's a perfect example of that. Exactly. That's where I was headed with this. And that's why he's become the daddy because Mm -hmm. he's the authority, right? The other thing he does, and that's not even that he does it, It comes as an advantage in this culture to his area of study, which comes as a disadvantage to your area of study. So we talked about people taking things literally, right? Mm -hmm. So literature, it only has to do with literature. Why are you talking about anything beyond that, right? Right. They can't pull themselves outside of that schema. Within that same schema, if you can't pull yourself out, he's in an area of study called evolutionary psychology. It has the word evolution in it. Mm -hmm. So you somehow do this mental interchange where you see him as an evolutionary biologist. Right. And evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology are worlds apart. Vastly different, right. And you could even argue that evolutionary psychology is a pseudoscience. And there's a lot of people who will argue that. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that nobody would argue that for evolutionary biology. Right. That's the difference. One has a lot of truth to it, but there are elements that can be questioned, whereas You've just interchanged it with capital T truth and even evolutionary biology. It's not capital T truth, but it's much more academically rigorous than evolutionary biology. Right. Right. So then it goes back to the primal instinct. It's in our nature. That guy, everything he's talking about is talking about evolution. And there's something there's something very attractive about the idea of things being inherent within us and the primal instinct and what we're attracted to in a partner, what we're attracted to just in our normal everyday lives. And that's why I think these pop psychologists kind of gravitate towards these things because they're so much easier to sell than saying, hey, you should learn this entire language and grammatical structure. So but then you'll really understand their culture. That's a lot more difficult to do. 
you know, in comparison to someone saying, hey, I have some buzzwords that I can throw at you that you've heard before. So you feel like you understand them. And then you're down kind of that path where you're talking about, for example, Eastern philosophy, where you're not attracted to Eastern philosophy. You don't actually like Eastern philosophy. You like the idea of telling people that you like Eastern philosophy and you can talk about it using these buzzwords that you've read online or maybe you've read a few you know, journal articles. So you have a basic understanding, but a true appreciation of those things goes so much deeper than that. And that's where comparative literature kind of houses all of these more nuanced ideas. If I just straight up started talking to you with ideas or with information that at the surface level is obvious confirmation bias, you'll see it. I'll know you'll see it Mm -hmm. and it'll be clear what I'm doing. But if I disguise my confirmation bias using something else, like the framework of quote unquote Eastern philosophy or something, Mm -hmm. then it just becomes a tool where I'm really still using confirmation bias. But instead of using right wing rhetoric, I'm using Eastern philosophy buzzwords. Exactly. And given that it's Eastern philosophy or any of these things, like even certain elements of the classics, like Greek philosophy, Stoicism, like you mentioned, when people hear those things like, oh, that's sort of exotic. So I believe that more. I think there's a quote or something. There's a saying of the most respectable person in the room or something is the person with the accent. The person with the accent knows the most in the room because you've you've automatically kind of exoticize them and you associate that with they must have some sort of knowledge that you don't have so they're more respectable and i think that happens a lot of the times even in the martial arts world when you think about guest coaches coming in to give a seminar or things like that or trainers and they're from they're of a different nationality with a different native language and you hear an accent and you automatically think oh they have something really interesting to offer me that I wouldn't be able to figure out on my own. But at the same time, it's still lacking any kind of critical thinking because it is a surface bias that you're placing on the fact that they have an accent, you know? It's a mental shortcut, what they call heuristics, right? Yes. And the stuff you were saying about language, it reminds me of, and this might be interdisciplinary, a way where you have to pull from other studies to understand whatever you're studying, right? This is what comparative literature sounds like it's doing. Mm -hmm. But it reminds me of Wittgenstein, where he talks about the limits of my language is the limit of my world, right? Basically, language creates my reality. Yes. Right. And that's what it appears like you're saying is that a lot of times we don't realize that whatever we perceive as our reality is a fixture of our language. Mm -hmm. And we don't see that bias. We don't see that limitation. We don't see that base assumption, right? Yes. And so we try to turn everything into our reality. But when we look at things from the original text, when we look at it from the original language and try to understand it culturally from that language and that culture, then our reality changes. So a pop culture reference that I'm thinking of that might help listeners is the movie Arrival, Mm -hmm. where I don't know if you saw it or not, but in the movie, an alien comes down and so they bring in a linguist which is the first time I've seen that in a movie where Mm -hmm. they bring in a linguist to try to understand that language. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that before. And then once she does, her perception of reality and time changes. And they get very sci-fi with it. But Mm -hmm. the premise is that once she becomes fluent in this language, her whole perception of reality changes just because they didn't zap her with some ray 
they didn't like put her in some machine or do anything fantastical with her. It's just that her brain learned a new language and that changed her perception of reality. This reminds me of like the early days of when cultures were first running into each other. It was like running into somebody from outer space. Oh, definitely. And you guys are both people from outer space to each other, right? In a mm-hmm. relative perspective. But because it is so foreign, out of even all the Eastern ideas, even like I mentioned with Taoism, that's still easier for people in the West to access than something like Confucianism, which has this circular idea of time right. and uh, the way it thinks about things because it doesn't even have something like centrism or argument to moderation to compare it to. Right. There's nothing that they can align it with closely enough and people will fit things. They'll kind of squish things into a space that it doesn't fit into if they can at least claim, okay, well, that's close enough to this. So that must be what it is because I knew that first. So it must be more true than what I learned second. So Eastern philosophy becomes very popular in certain circles. But that's the only one where people just draw quotes. Oh, love the quotes. Yes. But it never goes beyond the quotes, no. like something like Taoism or Buddhism does, because at least with those things, they could turn it into something they know. Mm-hmm. Whereas with that, I can't turn it into anything I know. So I'm just going to throw out some quotes that sound very confusing and right. funny to me. But that must have been what it must have been like for people when they first got introduced to Confucianism and they weren't from the East. They weren't Chinese. They're like, what is this? Mm hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And even just the barriers that we encounter with language alone are so extreme and they've affected us over the centuries in ways that we don't really even realize until you look into it further. Like even our idea of what a barbarian is comes from the Greek word barbaros, which is just from the idea that when they encountered people that didn't speak Greek, it sounded like they were saying like bar, 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 bar. So they made that word. And that's where our word barbarian comes from. So it's so focused on language, all of these other sort of intrinsic feelings that we have towards other people and the differences that we sense and feel towards other people are all so strongly rooted in linguistic differences. There was a word that you used earlier, compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. And that's another word that's changed over time where compartmentalize, even today, probably a therapist will say that's not good. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we use it as something good. Oh, I compartmentalize these things. Right. Because what's happened in our way of thinking about it, we no longer think of that word in a therapeutic way. We think about it in the way that it's been now used, going back to Marx, right? How it's become used in a capitalistic way. In capitalism, compartmentalizing is good. So now right. now our conception of that idea has changed mm-hmm. because we don't realize our world has changed. And the way we perceive everything now is through our world. Yes. And it's a guided perception. And that's what so many people don't realize. And It's not anyone's fault for not realizing that because it's not something on the surface. You have to think critically about it. But our perception of many things is a guided one. And that can be from the time of birth or it can be something that has been integrated into our education systems and integrated into the transference of history or writing or what translations are people working with. There's so many different variables that contribute to that. And that's where I think comparative literature works so well with the social sciences like sociology to understand these things and kind of take these 
arbitrary covers off of things and these dividers that we put in place that don't actually exist, but we've been told for so many hundreds of years that they do, um, that we end up finding ourselves in these positions where we look at someone that lives in Canada. How, I mean, that's, what is the difference between us and anyone that lives in Europe or Asia? We, we just create such distinct differences that aren't actually there. So when you say guided, for me to think about it, it makes more sense when I think about it as like an inherited assumption. Yes. With what I said about compartmentalizing, then we don't even realize that we have this baseline assumption of how everything works. But there was a before and after. When that word was a bad thing, now it's a good thing. Right. And you could think about bootstrapping the same way. It was a bad thing. Now it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. We know it's an assumption if it can change. I guess that's what I was trying to get at. There was an underlying assumption that we had and compartmentalizing was even bad, even in modern history. And then recently it became good in probably uh, some people's lifetime, mm-hmm. if they're old enough, where that word became good. So even if you live through an assumption change, you don't even notice that it changed. Right. And that it just becomes that's how it's always been. But the fact that it changed means that it was an assumption. It's not an actual fixture of reality. Exactly. And so even when we witness it and it is happening and we're living through it, you don't notice it. And then it could be two years out from that change. And you're like, that's just how it's always been. Definitely. And it's so hard to really get a grasp on how recent, like you're saying, some of these developments are in our societies. Even we think of things, we always kind of trace everything back oftentimes to classical antiquity, which is so distant. I mean, we're talking about, you know, time BC, but there are so many things that have changed with our communication systems. And like you said, the wealth of information that affects us so deeply that these are relatively new things. I mean, we're in 2019 and at the turn of the 20th century, a lot of these things didn't exist. That is not that long ago, especially on the grand scale of you know, how long we've had advanced civilization, that is not a new concept. But these things that we're seeing now, like the introduction of modernity, are brand new. I mean, when you look at places like Paris, who Paris is a city that went through several revolutions in the span of 70 years and went through the control of Napoleon, went through this... um urban sort of rebuilding process called Osmanization, where they completely reconstructed the city. And this is the same time that the arcades came in, which are these covered sort of shopping centers, and the department store was invented. These are all things that accompanied the introduction of the commodity culture. And these things that Marx was kind of cautioning against and recognizing They were brand new at that time, so they haven't been around for that long. I mean, it's maybe 100 years. They don't go back very many generations from where we are now. But people think of those times since we've had, you know, tenfold advancements in technology since then, where we have, you know, everything in the palm of our hand on our phones. They kind of look at those developments as if they were in classical antiquity, but they were relatively recent and we are still kind of writhing from the effects of these things. I was having this conversation with somebody about the term hanging up. They said, oh, I'm going to hang up the phone. Mm -hmm. And I go, don't you think that's funny? And they go, what do you mean? I go, hanging up. And they go, what about hanging up? And I said, what does hanging up mean? 
Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be enough to take them there. And they're like, what do you mean? Hanging up means hanging up. And I'm like, that's the vestige from when we had actual phones on the wall. That and you we would hang, hang up. up. Exactly. And that person to them, that was just a term that's always existed mm-hmm. throughout time where if I want to end my conversation with you, I am hanging up. Exactly. And that's the term that is fairly new and no longer literally means what it used to mean. Yeah, that's a great example. Actually, Sam, can you make a motion of picking up a phone with your hands real quick? What about you? Okay, so if for the listeners, Sam made a kind of hang loose sign and Sherry just made a fist and then put it to her ear. If I ask my sister or someone younger, they have their palm open. Oh, yeah. Almost as if they're gripping something like a brick. So for them, that's the phone. It's no longer, okay, with the end of a receiver, kind of like the when you mentioned hanging up. So for them, that's how they know the phone's ass. They're like, oh, okay, this is how it's supposed to be. So based on age, we have different assumptions. Mm-hmm. We have different realities. And people don't price that in or think about it in a holistic way because they can't. And you're making me feel stupid. Your whole area of study is bullshit, right? Right, exactly. You're wasting your time. You're not contributing anything. You know, learn a hard skill, learn the hard sciences. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, if we go to somebody like Karl Popper, right, for people who don't know, he was somebody who was very critical of even the hard sciences. And he was like, don't even introduce all those that we consider (laughs) hard science in there. There should be like most of the stuff should be whatever we think of, what are we taking? Most of our answers should be, I don't know. Mm -hmm. There should be just a few capital T truths and everything else is soft science. Everything else is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so even to a purist like that, most of what we consider hard sciences are soft sciences to him. Yeah. So if you're going to go that way to a purity test about science, then if you go to a purist, what you think is science is not even science. Yeah. Which leads me to something that I've been wanting to ask you throughout this whole conversation, which is critical theory and post-structuralism. So, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but critical theory is about looking at things as structures, as like more tangible things. I don't know if tangible is the right word, but it's a thing. Maybe the modern slang term is it's a thing, right? Whereas post-structuralism is like, no, it's not a thing. You just made it up. Right. This is my layman's definition of both. And so they're kind of at odds But in the way you're talking about things, you really need both to understand things in a more precise way. This isn't even a more subjective way. This isn't even a more liberal arts way. How do you get to precision? You have to price it all in. You have to have every variable in there. And so to understand things as a comparatist, you have to also balance, it seems like, post-structuralism with critical theory. Right. And this kind of brings me back to really the definition of comparative literature as such a broad spectrum of study where you it's your work is generally ending up as very focused in comparative literature. So yes, post-structuralism is there's positivism, structuralism, there's all sorts of varied categories of theory. They don't necessarily apply to my work. We have a working familiarity with all of these theories, but generally like a theory that I kind of subscribe to, particularly in my work with language and cultural linguistics, is there's a modern scholar named Jonathan Culler, and he kind of works with um, language and the idea of deconstructionism. And I don't know if you're familiar with deconstructionism at all, but it's a way of looking at language and, again, 
thinking about the structure of language and how we engage with it and how all of our words are defined in opposition to another word. So good only means good because we know what evil is, things like that. To give people an example of this in real life, right? When you only praise somebody, let's say I teach martial arts like that, only praise you. And then one day you did something, I don't say anything. Mm -hmm. You understand praise in opposition to its opposite, right? Right. So because I didn't praise you, that automatically means you think I did something bad. Yes, right. exactly. Because even though I didn't say the opposite, you know the opposite exists because the way we've already been taught to understand words or language is in opposition. So whether you say it or not, I take my framework into all things. Exactly. And it it really depends on how we choose to engage with those frameworks, particularly in regards to making good faith effort at translation. When we're translating texts or pieces of entertainment or other cultural artifacts from different places across the world, how are we going to choose to interact with those things and be explicit about the biases that we might have towards them? So, and this is kind of an issue, and this is something that I'm very interested in, in regards to translation theory, is that a lot of the working assumptions are based on the fact that, well, if I have text A, and I'm trying to get to what we call the target text of B in the language, the secondary language that I'm translating it into, you know, our assumptions guide us into thinking that, well, any good translator would take A and they would make B. They would make one good translation. But in actuality, a good translator would ideally make maybe three translations. And then an amalgamation of all three of those would be the ideal text. Because how can you possibly engage with these structures of language that have such deeply philosophical meanings to us and connections to our lives? How can one translation be so simple? And so I think we're moving towards a place in translation practice where we're identifying that it's not that simple because you're engaging not only with a basic vocabulary translation, but the philosophical and social connections of words and how and how speakers engage with their cultural surroundings through language. And there's um there's an author, she wrote a book called Smothered Words. Her name is Sarah Kaufman. And it's about using language philosophically and the right of someone to retell a Holocaust story, a Holocaust survivor story. And her father passed away in during the Holocaust and about how fragile language is and how fragile our psyches are and what it means to convey that story through words when it's so deeply entrenched in emotions and how language could possibly explicate that experience. That sounds a lot like what George Lakoff would talk about when he says individuals will try to get complex ideas and they boil it down to simple things that are metaphors for them to understand. Exactly. And that's what we end up doing a lot of the time. But when scholars are engaging critically with that idea, particularly with sensitive topics such as the Holocaust and extreme political movements that we're you know witnessing now, for example, it's hard to claim the right to tell these stories, you know, and how how to properly give an account of yourself through language and how could that possibly be translated? In our day-to-day lives here in Los Angeles, a lot of Angelinos do this naturally where they're going to do what's called quote-unquote Spanglish or me as a Korean, Konglish, which is 
I want to express ideas, so I'm telling it to maybe Paul using mostly English,、mm-hmm. and then there's some words where the English translation doesn't tell the whole story, so I have to use a Korean word.、Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who speak multiple languages have to combine it, not because they don't know the translated word. Sometimes that happens, but sometimes it's because the translated version isn't accurate to the emotion and to the power of that word. So、exactly. they still have to use the original word. And that's what's so hard about English is that we're a society, honestly, in my opinion, kind of above all that are guilty of taking words and elements of language from different cultures that have such emotional significance, particularly within their cultures, and trying to extract them and translate them in a way that we really can't properly convey the same ideas in English because we don't have those same associations with our words. We have them with. Maybe some of our more extreme swear words, but we really don't have them about even words on the opposite end of the spectrum about positive words or religious words. Nothing is really off limits to us, you know. And that you can see that a lot of the times, even more simply. And this is something that I think a lot of other people do maybe look into just for fun is when you see how other cultures、um, curse. And the words that they use to curse, they just do not translate into English. They don't make any sense. And you know, like the curse words in Italian, like ones that I would never say, are just about a reference to God. And like, well, we say "God damn it" and stuff like that, and we don't think anything of it. But they have words that are infinitely worse than that. That it would be insane for me to say. And it doesn't, you know, it translate base translates basically to just saying "fat God" or "pig God." And you know, to us, you're like, well, okay, but they have so much more significance in their setting. So you have to look at this in a lot of different lenses as a comparatist, right? Right. Actually, the the term comparatist sounds a lot easier to understand than comparative literature. I you agree. You just think of somebody as a comparatist, then you're like, oh, they're comparing all these different ideas, right? And so, just like as I said, Taoism is not moderation or centrism. What you said earlier about Doing an ideal translation, and you're doing multiple translations and trying to integrate something together.、Mm-hmm. Comparatives also aren't then centrist because I could see people also doing that. They're like, "Oh, I kind of do that. I watch Fox News and I watch CNN, and then I just mix them together, and I know the actual truth." And that's the going to this idea of the Overton window, right? If I watch something like Fox News, which is Pretty far right, or let's say I go all the way to Alex Jones,、mm-hmm. really, really far right, right, and then I watch CNN or even MSNBC, which is I would say left the center, but it's still close to the center, right. And I'm like, okay, I have both ends, right.、Mm-hmm. Now I know the capital T truth, or I have the correct perspective. The problem with this is multifold, but one of them is that you're assuming that both sides are factually as accurate. And factually, as useful and practical, right?、Mm-hmm. And they're not both equally useful and practical, or ethically sound, for、yeah. that matter. Yeah. And also, you're looking at something that's a little bit left of center and something far right. So your mid, yeah, your median is not the center. Yeah, and also because in the U.S., you'd much rather watch Fox than read something that's more leftist, more socialist. Let's、mm-hmm. say, right? Like even a lot of liberals. Liberal Democrats, they'd go on a podcast that featured Alex Jones, then they would go on a podcast that featured a communist.、Mm-hmm. 
even though ethically, probably the American communist is a lot better than Alex Jones. Right. We have that weird bias, right? Mm hmm. Because communism hasn't really gone too well in the past. Yeah, they have all these. In like, practice, it hasn't. But yeah, in they theory. Have all these, but they have all these biases about it, right? Right. And the modern American communists are not like fans of the Soviet Union. That would be something exactly. else. Exactly. They're more fans of the theory and they want to find a useful approach to that that doesn't turn into the USSR. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like that word again. Then when we say somebody's a communist now versus communist USSR at that past, it's not even the same meaning, right? Right. But it's easier for them to just pretend like it is the same exact thing. I'll just say that because it would be too much effort for me to actually learn the differences and how the theory of communism got warped and turned into that. Yeah, that would take too much effort. And people really aren't big fans of putting in a lot of effort these days. They want shortcuts. Right. So the centrist then would do the center left and the far right, mm -hmm. whereas a comparatist would look at the center left, the center right, the far right, the far left, All and then it. also vertically, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. There are other axes here. Yeah, play. like in a three-dimensional axis, these are more of a two-dimensional plane. Like you could see it on a piece of paper, a sliding scale, right? Right, right, wrong. You yeah, know? whereas you would look at it in a whole bunch of different ways on top of that. Exactly. So even a comparatist isn't a centrist. Right. Because the whole approach is different. Right. And you have to acknowledge where do these extremes and extremists come from and why do they emerge from these sociopolitical kind of tense moments? Like there's a reason that they are perennial factors in the issues that we've had across the world. It's not a purely Western idea and it's not a purely Eastern idea or issue at hand. I mean, we need to explore the roots of these issues. And that's what a lot of that's what good comparative literature does. You know, it's not it's not necessarily like we're a discipline that's going to have policy implications, but it's one that furthers an understanding of the world around you. And if you want to continue living in a stable society and not end up going through this cycle over and over, you need to think critically and think more deeply about these different things that are at play actually think through the idea instead yes. of just looking at things that face value exactly now how did you get into academia because something you mentioned before we started recording was that you were homeschooled oh yes <laughs> so give us your whole origin story how did you even end up homeschooled and how did you go from using the comparative uh, literature terminology go from a to b <laughs> So I was homeschooled for about five years from kindergarten to fifth grade. Um, that's a really good question as to why I was homeschooled. You would think that I would know that, but I don't. Usually homeschooling, the way our assumptions work is that we assume it's because of some religious reason. And it wasn't that. No. And you know what's strange is that neither of my parents are particularly religious at all. But we did use a religious, uh, a Christian-based homeschool curriculum. I don't remember it being particularly religious in the things that we learned, but uh, like particularly biased towards certain religions because I remember learning about other religions, but I was so young that I probably don't, you know, I just don't remember at this I point. Think 
I think most of them are religious based just because that's the dominant demographic circumstance. Yeah, exactly. And circumstance that does homeschooling. Just like if I want to do in LA a dual language school mm-hmm. for my kid, any of the daycares and preschools that are dual language, they're all religious based. Oh, really? And you could just find ones that are less religious, but they're still going to be religious based because majority of the people who want that are religious. Right. And I think the same thing for homeschooling. Yeah. Even by if you're virtue not, of circumstance. Yeah. Right. By virtue of circumstances, the people who are making it mm-hmm. are going to be from some religious affiliation. Right. Right. Was it because your parents are teachers or academics? No, my parents are not teachers nor academics. Um, they're both very smart people, but um, our curriculum was completely taught to us by my mom uh, when we were younger. And then when I was in fifth grade, we went into public schools and I did, you know, it took some social, definitely some social adjustments happen. And I still have some lingering effects of social anxiety that I'm largely sure stemmed from being homeschooled. But what can you do? Um, But I always enjoyed school and I always enjoyed learning. And Both of my parents, I will say, I think that I may have gotten my love of language learning from my parents because my dad, although he never became has become fluent in any language, he was kind of one of those people where he always had one of those casual cassette tapes in the car of like, learn Cantonese while you drive. Like, Dad, I don't think you're going to learn one of the most intricate, difficult languages while you drive. But okay. But you inherited something, right? As we were talking about before. Yeah, at least a curiosity. I would say that. And then so, I mean, I was just in a regular kind of small scale public school in a small town in Wisconsin, um, graduated high school. And then I actually went to beauty school, basically. It was like a makeup artistry school. And I did that for a year. And then I went into college after that. I just started in community college. Did you go into beauty school thinking originally that's where your path was going to head? I did. I did that. I mean, I remember when I was leaving high school that I would watch um, America's Next Top Model and I would look at the people doing makeup on there and I just decided what that's what I'm going to do with my life because I always had sort of a creative element. There was I always wanted to be doing something creative. And I think that was the most accessible option for me at that time realistic no but in my mind it was accessible because like oh i can afford to go to school for this you know so i did that and the culture of where you grew up in wisconsin did a lot of other people you went to high school with end up in trade schools a lot of trade schools or just a gen- either community college or just kind of like a run-of-the-mill four-year university. I don't think there, I definitely don't come from a background in a community where I think a lot of foresight is involved, um, just because that's not, I think that's not where a lot of our parents came from. You know, there wasn't as much importance because you didn't need a college. I mean, now a four-year, a bachelor's degree is basically the equivalent of a high school diploma now. It wasn't like that 50 years ago, you know? What made you realize then that beauty school is not for you and I'm going to go to school? Well, I stayed. One thing that was really nice, and I don't know where exactly the switch happened, but I did the beauty school thing and I was, I did that partially at night. I would take classes doing the beauty school thing while I was doing community college classes too. And this is just, we're talking the 
general education requirements kind of classes. So you were still just trying to figure it out? Trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I know that so many people caution against a gap year because I had a gap year as well. I'm surprised people now don't even know what that term is because there's such a pressure going back to what I was saying before about Mm -hmm. specialization that kids now and parents now don't even know what that term is because I took a gap year. Yeah. And I was talking to a parent. They were like, what's that? Because now the emphasis is so much about you have to know exactly what you're going to do with your life exactly. before you're done with high school. It's Which is insane yeah. to think that. I mean, when I look at myself at when I was 19, 20 years old, if I was put in a position to make a serious decision about what I was going to do for the rest of my life, which is what a lot of people do, they just pick one thing and then they kind of view life as by matter of circumstance that, well, this is the thing that I chose. I'm going to do this forever now, you know, until I retire. But doing the gap year was one of the best decisions I ever made. And for listeners who don't know what a gap year is, right? <laughs> because they came from, you know, Barry. <laughs> if you were born after 2000. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you come from a background where it's like everything was decided for you. It's a year where maybe you don't go to school at all, or maybe you go to community college or something, but it's a year break or maybe sometimes longer where you try to figure it out before you go to university. Some people travel, some people work, but it's a time for you to figure it out. And for me, it was because I was just so burned out from high school. Mm -hmm. I just mentally needed a break, but that's what it is. So so now maybe it's like a mythical unicorn. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Oh yeah, I used to hear about people doing that a long time ago. (laughs) Or like this idea of coming back to college. You know, that wasn't that uncommon for you to go back to college and finish up your college in your 30s, getting your undergraduate in your 30s or Mm -hmm. even 40s. That wasn't that weird. Now it's pretty weird. Right. And it's but look at where young adults are ending up, because if we're everything about our culture and our society is telling people of that age, your ideas aren't worth anything. You don't have enough information. You haven't consumed enough information to have a respectable amount of input in these conversations that are going on and in our just general social discourse. But you need to pick exactly what you're going to do for the rest of your life right now. And if you take a gap year, you're a loser and you're never going to go back because it's always harder to go back after you take a break. But for me, I mean, I assume that it's probably different for everyone. But on my year off, it gave me a lot of clarity to decide what I actually wanted to do. I took a year and I just, that was before I even did the beauty school thing. I took a year, I had my own apartment, I was working and I was young and I'm sure I was stupid because we're all stupid at that age, but it gave me a chance to breathe and to think about what I wanted the rest of my life to look like, you know? It's almost like a pressure release valve where if you do the gap year, you're less likely to hit your quarter life crisis. Exactly. (laughs) You're like, okay, I took time off. No need for the quarter life crisis. Let's get on with business. (laughs) Exactly. So from classics to comparative literature, Mm -hmm. I can see that natural transition. But how did you go from beauty school and figuring it out to the classics? So that was kind of an interesting thing that still all seems like a bit of a blur for some reason. But I was doing kind of both at the same time, but I hit some point where I realized that because I had to pay my own way through everything, I had to pay my own rent and pay all of these bills that I had accumulated and was continuing to accumulate, 
And so I needed to make my own way, but I was not willing to give up going to school because in the very at the very least I knew the significance of like the plan B or having a degree to fall back on so at least I would have a bachelor's degree. So I was like, well, I'm not going to stop going to college. I'm never going to do that. So I'm going to keep going. And then I started just using doing makeup, which is what I was doing professionally in Chicago and in Wisconsin as well, as an easy job that I could do and make decent money at on a completely flexible schedule that was largely centered on the weekends. And then I could go to school during the week and still pay all of my bills, which is a relatively difficult thing to do with any other job because they're not flexible with their schedules or this, that, and the other thing. But it was kind of like the perfect storm of career conflict choices, but then it ended up being beneficial because it financed my way through undergrad. And then just through taking my general education kind of classes, I remember that I took a class on Egyptian civilization, and that is not considered part of the classics, but that sparked my interest in at least ancient history and the classical world, seeing how how modern things in their societies were, because that's the problem with a lot of our education that we receive is that we think of things that happened a long time ago as, yes, there's elements that are archaic, but there are so many elements like their social problems, their political systems, their their avenues of expression and conflict are virtually identical to ours. So that sparked my interest in just kind of investigating the ancient world at large. And then from there, I had a professor tell me that, oh, well, actually, I think it was my husband that told me that classics was a thing. Interestingly enough, because I was telling him Oh, you guys were already together at this point? Yes, we were. We've been together since the 1700s. So, since antiquity. Yeah, since antiquity, exactly. So he actually told me about classics because I think I was telling him, like, I want to do this and I want to, like, I want to research ancient Rome and stuff. But so he kind of found that out somehow and introduced me to that. And then I just kind of went full-fledged into classics. And at that point, I was kind of, further along because I started out as a physics major because that's what I was good at in high school and and I liked the hard sciences to a certain extent. Um, Then I got like past, I got to like the first level of something calculus and I was like, oh, I actually hate this now. I've decided. And, And then I switched. This is all happening at the same time and I switched to classics. So it was already kind of later in my degree process, I guess. So you have to learn the ancient languages to get a respectable BA. Like you can get one in classical civilization and not do any language work, but it just doesn't look as good. So, and I, I was kind of like, oh, I want to do it the right way, you know? So then I had to kind of start fresh with my ancient languages, which are very difficult and hard to learn and worked at that, got my BA um, at the same time that my husband was starting his PhD program in sociology out here. I started what's called the post-baccalaureate program in classics at UCLA, which is basically a one-year, kind of like an intensive um, program in classics that can boost your CV and help you get into a good PhD program. What is CV? Uh, Your curriculum vitae. So it's basically your resume in academia. 
So when I was in the post-baccalaureate program, I noticed that a lot of my work was always being kind of restricted in a certain sense. And classics in general, when you think of it even, you probably have associations of mm, maybe it's a bit like British fancy. Um, it sounds like a lot of martial arts. What you're trying to say is the traditional karate. And it was like too old, yes. too restrictive. Yes. And you said you felt constrained. Right? Yes. And that's how a lot of martial artists felt before they got introduced to mixed martial arts. Yes. It almost sounds like in academia, even though people in combat sports might hate on comparative literature, it is the mixed martial arts of yes. academia. Thank you. Right? We can conclude with that. <laughs> You've said it all. That is a very apt point of observation and very accurate because that is how I felt. When I was in the classics program, I felt that my ideas, I was constantly reining them in. I was constantly being told that like, well, you need to take out some of these modern references and this modern scholarship that's interdisciplinary because this is classics and we stick to this and we're old and we're stuffy. It's and tradition. This is, it's tradition. And there have been lots of issues in recent history with um, classics at large, just as a discipline, being recognized for its really, to be honest, exclusionary practices. I mean gender-based, race-based, orientation-based, lots of things. It's just, you know, it has its origins and, well, at least its traditions. You think of like, you know, stuffy British, rigorous schoolwork of studying Latin since you're five years old, you know. Like a stuffy dojo where you got exactly <laughs> always tie your belt the same way. You got to get on and off the mat the same way. Exactly. It sounds like a similar feeling to that. It is. And I think it's come a long way. We have um, a lot of feminist classicists and people that I really respect and admire and, and mentored me when I was in that program and really helped me figure out that I didn't want to be in classics because just because that's where I first found my passion for history, my passion for history in classics kind of evolved, just like a lot of our ideas and our passions and career options evolve. But I decided I didn't want to keep sticking with something that I didn't truly love. And so then I ended up finding comparative literature where I was just kind of on this hunt of like, well, I... I want to tie in these ideas that were birthed in antiquity and recognize that they were, but I want to connect them to the modern world and the issues we have today and the things, the problems that we see today and how we interact with the world around us and not just be trapped in this time capsule. And so that's what kind of drew me to comparative literature combined with the fact that I had started studying Italian and realized that I loved modern languages a lot more than I loved ancient dead languages. Well, it sounds like the whole story is comparative literature. Going back to your dad, playing those tapes. Mm -hmm. You're inheriting something. Guidance. Yes. Guidance of reality, right? And then also you were doing something very practical. The trade school, mm -hmm. doing beauty. But because you had that there for you mentally and also financially, right. then you let your interest decide instead of doing it based off of like, what's the thing that could give me a stable income? You already have that through the beauty work that you were doing, right? That gave you the freedom as a student then to let your interests decide the area of study exactly. instead of going for like 
what's going to make me money, what's going to give me a job. Right. Exactly. And that, you know, I would say in a lot of ways, too, I was motivated by the work that my husband does in academia, where he's taken also a not very traditional path of doing the whole trade school thing or doing a four-year degree or an MBA and, you know, getting the solid job that pays a ton right off the bat. And then you just kind of stick with that forever. We're both willing to maybe sacrifice some of the time, the free time and the money in the beginning to pursue what's actually going to be beneficial to us and create a life for us that's going to be both sustainable and enjoyable. So to go back to antiquity, then you die <laughs> right? Yes. Human flourishing. Yes. Because you've already done the practical thing. You guys both have done the practical thing, right? Getting a job. Oh, we've worked many jobs. Yes. So you're like, well, life can't be just about money. It has to be about human happiness. Exactly. And that's where martial arts has, you know, come into play in our lives as well, where it was a part of his life long before he met me. And we've been together for over 10 years. So, you know, that kind of through osmosis, I kind of became a martial artist and started training and saw the benefits. and you know, now we own this beautiful academy that we're so proud of. And it's just everything. It just is a piece to the puzzle that it's been so long in the making. And it's finally, we're finally sort of at this point where things have come to fruition. I assumed you went to homeschool because you were fighting so much in regular school. Exactly. Yes. So it's all coming back to... I have a very intimidating and threatening stature, even though people can't see me. Yeah. So it all (laughs) has come full circle back to how it all started. Exactly. That fighting in school has led us all here. Right. (laughs) I wonder if Justin suggested you studied a classics because he watched Die Hard. And then he noticed Hans Gruber at that classic (laughs) education. That might have been it, to be honest with you. I don't know how he came up with it, but maybe that was it. He studied the classics, and then a couple of years later, we rob a bank. Exactly. So we do it. Was that his background in the movie? That was his background. He tells the (laughs) bank president, like, the benefits of a classic education. A classical, a rigorous classical education. That's what what I need. Because when you're trying to make, like, the most stereotypical villain, Mm -hmm. you're like, What's the stuffiest place to make this happen? A bank. Exactly. (laughs) And what's the stuffiest thing that he could have studied? The classics. Boring classics. Yes, please. Ancient, dusty classics. (laughs) Yep, yep. You know, there's actually another podcast. I think it's defunct now called Mixed Mental Arts. But Oh, yeah. But they were trying to be more like centrist. I think they were were using the term wrong. You're using that term wrong. I think what we have here actually with both you and Justin is two mixed martial artists who are also mixed mental artists so i like that all right well thank you for your time sherry thank you so much thank you for having me 